During his 1933 Easter address, Amon de Valera made it abundantly clear that Ireland's path to independence was imminent. Regrettably, however, several formidable barriers still stood in the way, demanding swift dismantling. That memorable morning resounded with determination. As he said, let us remove these forms one by one so that this state that we control may be a republic in fact, and that when the time comes, the proclaiming of the republic may involve no more than a ceremony, the formal confirmation of a status already attained. The primary obstacle or form, as de Valera referred to it, was the onerous oath of allegiance to the British crown. This oath served as the catalyst for Amon's resignation. It played a pivotal role in sparking the Irish Civil War and remained a persistent thorn in de Valera's side that could no longer be tolerated. Ireland was poised for a transformative phase, and the removal of this symbolic tie was a critical first step. Yet the winds of change were blowing even more than he realized throughout the 1930s and 1940s. By the conclusion of World War II, Eamon would find himself on the brink of realizing an independent Irish Republic. You're listening to Empires, Anarchy, and Other Notable Moments a podcast designed for deep dives that assist in the teaching of history. This series focuses upon Irish politician Amon de Valera. Episode number five, The Fight for Ireland's Place in the World. Ten days after delivering his Easter address, Eamon moved a motion forward to remove the oath. The public gallery enthusiastically applauded his closing line of, We are ending it here today, thank God. We are ending this civil war and the causes of this civil war. It's interesting to think that in Eamon's mind, the civil war was continuing. History books note the end of it occurring at 1923. 10 years earlier than this address. But Eamon could never accept losing. Thus, it was convenient for him to believe that while the fighting may have stopped in 1923, the war continued. The British were surprisingly content to allow the oath to fade away in England. The Dominion secretary simply reminded them that removing the oath would not affect the required paying of taxes nor was the failure to take the oath in itself a repudiation of allegiance. In their mind, little changed. But Eamon wasn't planning to stop with the oath. The next forms of British control targeted were the British right to withhold legislation, appropriation of money, and their right of appeal. These acts did more than pique British interests. The Irish were directly warned that a decision to leave the Commonwealth would mean that Ireland would be treated just like any other foreign country. Irish citizens working in England would become illegal aliens. Taxes would be raised on tradable commodities. And it meant that as a foreign power, England could declare war against Ireland. 
De Valera proceeded anyways. But as always, his actions had unforeseen consequences. While British law allowed him to remove the colonial ties, Irish law technically didn't. In an unrelated Supreme Court case, the Irish High Court gave a ruling that if it were picked up and applied to Amon's actions, would have overturned Ireland's exit from the Commonwealth. I.e., if someone challenged it, the oath would return, and Eamon would be forced to sign it once again. Always one to go overboard, his solution to this was to rewrite the entire Irish constitution to ensure that his actions would be viewed as legitimate. Eamon oversaw the constitutional process from its infancy in 1933 to its adoption into law in 1937. He personally supervised the drafting of the document, which is written in both English and Irish, although the two languages regularly cause differing interpretations. Wanting the people to be included, he risked everything by putting the document to a vote by the people rather than just approving it along party lines in the Dáil. But the Irish people were not the only ones who were given a say. The Vatican was sent an unfinished copy for their approval. The preamble of the document makes it clear what type of nation Ireland would become. It begins with, In the name of the Most Holy Trinity, for whom is all authority, and to whom, as our final end, all actions, both of men and states, must be referred to. We, the people of the Ira, humbly acknowledging all our obligations to our divine Lord Jesus Christ, who sustains our fathers through centuries of trial, gratefully remembering their heroic and unremitting struggle to regain the rightful independence of our nation, and seeking to promote the common good, with due observance to prudence, justice, and charity, so that the dignity and freedom of the individual may be assured, true social order attained, the unity of our country restored, and concord established with other nations, do hereby adopt, enact, and give to ourselves this Constitution. If you recall from our second episode, the Protestants in Northern Ireland originally formed the Ulster Volunteers because they regarded Irish home rule as the equivalent of Rome rule. Although freedom of religion was explicitly written into the document, liberal Catholic social justice as well as conservative Catholic social views can be found throughout the document. Multiple times it is made clear that a woman's place in the world is in her home, raising the children. Journalist Gertrude Gaffney claimed that Eamon dislikes and distrusts women as a sex. She even went so far as to compare his policies to those of Hitler, of whom he appears to be so ardent a disciple. It is difficult to read the original document and not see Eamon's double standards. Even when he was trying to help women, he put them down. For example, Article 45.2 codifies the inferiority of women by saying that the state would ensure in the economic field that the inadequate strength of women shall not be abused. For what it's worth, Dev reacted to claims that he was prejudiced against women with bewilderment, which probably just shows you how far from understanding feminism he was. 
Until 1996, the Constitution outlawed divorce. But traditional Enlightenment ideas also made their way into the document, including the right to a fair trial, freedom of expression, and judicial review. Some of these rights were directly lifted from the work that the Irish did in studying a number of European constitutions, specifically Germany, Poland, Portugal, and Austria. The Senate saw its power reduced, and a new, mostly ceremonial role of president was created. Here again, there were accusations of Eamon acting as an authoritarian despot. The role of president was largely taken from the constitution of the Weimar Republic. However, unlike in the Weimar Republic's ill-fated constitution, the Irish president would have no role in the formation of the government and was not able to assume dictatorship during a crisis. Both of these ideas featured prominently in the rise of Hitler. Still, opposition leader Cosgrave stated, If de Valera is going to be prime minister, he will put in someone as president over whom he will have the whip hand. If he is president, he will see that whoever is prime minister will be subordinate and subservient to him. This fear of manipulation of the office of the presidency has manifested itself in the 21st century history of Vladimir Putin's Russia, as he and Dmitry Medvedev have passed the roles of prime minister and president back and forth like they are locked in a never-ending game of hot potato. Dev would eventually become president, but the role remained largely ceremonial and ineffective at generating policy. In fact, the Constitution, although clearly flawed, is impeccably democratic. We have all found Eamon to be exceedingly particular regarding wording. The new Constitution strengthened the people's right to rule, express themselves, and challenge laws through judicial review which also made it into a living and breathing document. Today, the Catholicism and the anti-feminist rhetoric have been toned down. Divorce is accessible, as is the right to marry as a member of the LGBTQ community. Even more democratic was the decision to pass it through a referendum of the people. In the final vote, 56.5% were in favor of the Constitution, and 43.5% registered their disagreement. What did the British have to say about a document that unequivocally proclaimed Irish independence? Not much. De Valera's timing was impeccable, or at least really lucky. This was because the Crown was in the midst of what would become the abdication crisis. 1936 would become known in England as the Year of Three Kings. King George V, the first monarch of the House of Windsor, the current residence of Buckingham Palace, died of bronchitis on January 20th. His son, Edward VIII, became the new King of England, and by extension the new Lord Ruler of the Commonwealth, which still technically included Ireland. Edward was known as a playboy socialite, and many regarded him as ill-fit for the crown. In my favorite Tom Cruise movie, Vanilla Sky, there is a remarkable line that claims the answer to 99 out of 100 questions is money. I tend to bring up this line quite a bit as I teach, but there's always that nagging question about what answers the remaining one. 
all too often, I find that remaining answer to be women. In this case, the woman is American socialite and, for the moment, married Ms. Wallace Simpson. Although they publicly denied it, it was believed by one and all that Ms. Simpson and Prince Edward had been participating in a year-long affair before he ascended to the throne. Once he was on that throne, she divorced her second husband, and King Edward expressed his desire to marry the woman that he loved. But British royal society is not always as open to new blood joining their crew particularly not an American who had two other still-living ex-husbands. The tabloids in Britain were particularly harsh on Ms. Simpson, fully believing that she was a gold digger, reaching above her assigned station in life. Edward was smitten, however, and he was willing to give up the throne in order to marry the love of his life. But marrying for love isn't as easy for a royal as it is for you or I. Edward's decision to abdicate the throne gave de Valera an unprecedented opportunity. Under British law, every member of the Commonwealth had to agree to change the rules of succession. This meant that if Ireland withheld their agreement, Britain would have to keep Edward and his twice-divorced American wife. When this potential crisis was mentioned, Prime Minister Stanley Baldwin assumed that everything would be okay, saying that he felt that de Valera wasn't the type to kick a man when he was down. Clearly, this was to be his first negotiation with the Longfellow, and he was woefully unprepared. Although de Valera could have opted to instantly declare republic, he worried that declaring independence for the 26 southern counties at this junction would cut off any chances of creating an independent 32-county Ireland later. He instead took the middle road, getting the British to accept complicated legislation that didn't quite make Ireland free, but still removed it from the Commonwealth. Ireland now existed in a legal gray zone, he had accomplished his decades-long goal of bringing Ireland into external association with the British Commonwealth. With that hurdle removed, the now kingless Constitution of Ireland was passed in 1937. The British attempted to spin the events their way, falsely proclaiming that this was the moment that de Valera was finally accepting the sovereignty of the British crown. So what happened to Edward and Wallace? The two took lesser titles, and he eventually served as the governor of the Bahamas. The rumors of her being a gold digger proved to be false, as the two would remain together for the rest of their lives. However, a new rumor that was harder to shake would later attach itself to the couple. It came after the two visited Adolf Hitler, and he remarked that it was a shame Edward had to give up the throne as he would have made a fine king. This vote of confidence, along with a number of other clues, led to the belief that the couple were secretly Nazi sympathizers and spies. This wasn't just tabloid conjecture, as the British Secret Service and America's FBI each opened separate files and kept surveillance on the couple throughout World War II. 
There was real fear that a Hitler victory would include putting Edward and Wallace back into power as a form of Vichy England. Although it took an exhausting five years, the rewriting of the Constitution may have been the easiest challenge that de Valera faced during the interwar years. Fascism was the threat de jour in Europe, and Ireland was no exception. Benito Mussolini's radical political philosophy was widely credited with Italy's quick recovery from the Great Depression, and Adolf Hitler's economic miracle in Germany served to confirm the theory. Eamon's historical ties to Germany and his natural authoritarian tendencies led many to believe that he would lean into the right-wing movement. Ireland's brush with fascism would come to be known as the Blue Shirt Crisis, but surprisingly, de Valera wasn't the cause. It began in April 1933, when former IRA member Owen O'Duffy formed the Army Comrades Association, a group that would become known as the Blue Shirts for their quasi-military-styled blue uniform. At this time, a light blue color represented fascism in Europe, and O'Duffy's boys wore the name as proudly as they wore the color. The organization formed to oppose Fianna Fáil after it widened its electoral advantage in the 1933 snap elections. Although they presented themselves as protectors of the traditional social order, the group sought to bring about the end of the democratic order. De Valera reorganized the IRA to shut down blue shirt rallies, which only drove more recruits to their cause. Many IRA members stayed loyal to O'Duffy, but De Valera bought off a number of them and formed the Broy Harriers to serve as his enforcers against their former IRA comrades. O'Duffy's blue shirts eventually numbered 30,000 strong and appeared to be itching to restart the Irish Civil War. The funeral of Michael Patrick Lynch was one such instance that could have resulted in war. The blue shirts opposed Fenia Falls' policy of using government dollars to buy unsold cows and use their meat to feed the poor. Policies like this were labeled as communist in nature, and blue shirts regularly protested the sales. In one of these demonstrations, the over-eager Harriers shot Michael Patrick Lynch, a blue shirter, dead. The funeral became a nationwide event, replete with every fascist symbol, from the one-armed salute to military drills as part of the occasion. De Valera, who had just solidified his democratic credentials by passing the new constitution, got rid of the blue shirts by turning to authoritarian methods. First, he revoked known blue shirt members' permits to carry or own firearms. Next, he limited their constitutionally protected right to assemble. When those measures did not succeed, he unilaterally banned the organization, criminalizing membership. The malicious ties to right-wing opposition parties allowed de Valera's dull opponents to claim that he was banning his political opposition. Owen O'Duffy was able to get around each of these challenges, 
including the banning of the blue shirts, by cleverly renaming the organization as the National Guard. De Valera proceeded to then ban the National Guard, only to have Owen outmaneuver him once more by becoming the head of the 30,000-strong, newly named Young Ireland Association. Coming to the conclusion that Owen knew enough words to permanently stay ahead of Eamon's banning game, De Valera turned his attention to their fascist fashion. He banned the wearing of uniforms, particularly blue ones. He expended a lot of political capital, but succeeded by a vote of 77 to 61. The Senate, however, refused to pass the legislation. How did Eamon respond to this setback? not in a democratic manner. Six days after the uniform ban was vetoed, De Valera introduced legislation to abolish the Senate. After the Senate was dispersed, Eamon was free to move with a heavy hand. The leaders of the Blue Shirts were arrested, and the organization was disbanded once and for all. Eamon, though, still had to deal with troublesome remnants from the IRA members who had joined O'Duffy's cause. This gave him another opportunity to once again work with the IRA. They offered a five-year deal, where they would serve the goals of Fianna Fáil in exchange for Eamon unilaterally declaring that Northern Ireland was part of the country of Ireland, rather than as a separate British territory. Such a move would have ignited a war, with the likelihood that Britain would intervene on the side of the North. Upon being denied, the Irish Republican Army interrupted one of Eamon's St. Patrick Day broadcasts, rendering him inaudible for the duration of the speech. Within two weeks, the IRA had been declared an illegal organization under Article 2A of the Constitution, which allowed for the formation of military tribunals against the Republican guerrilla fighters. Gary Bolin, the Fianna Fáil Minister of Justice, declared his intent to crush the IRA just as effectively as they had crushed the Blue Shirts. Eamon, no stranger to desolate prisons, purposefully assigned the IRA prisoners that he rounded up to detention in conditions that were calculated to destroy their mental and physical health. The guards wore rubber-soled shoes, so that their movements would not break the mandatory 24 hours of silence within the prison. Historian David McCullough eloquently wrote that the solitude served to accomplish the same dread work on living men as quicklime did on the bones of the dead. Having faced down the British as well as internal threats from the Blue Shirts and the IRA, Eamon then turned his attention to Adolf Hitler and the rise of Nazi Germany. Although Eamon clearly had a greatness complex regarding his own worth, he seems to have always understood Ireland's place in the world. Small nations regularly felt like the pawns of the chessboard. 100% aware that the larger powers would sacrifice them if it served to advance their own goals. As early as 1935, Eamon made it clear that the Irish people do not want to be dragged into any war, European or other. 
Achieving this would require every ounce of skill that he had as a diplomat. Ireland went into prevent defense against the rise of Hitler as early as 1932, when it was Ireland's turn to assume the presidency of the League of Nations. Created out of the ashes of World War I, the League of Nations was tasked with bringing the world together to prevent minor intrastate issues from escalating beyond their borders. Woodrow Wilson believed it to be his greatest achievement, and was willing to cede the other 13 points from his infamous 14-point speech in order to get the Allies to acquiesce to the League. Despite his insistence, the United States was never admitted into the institution, as the U.S. Senate refused to ratify Wilson's treaty as punishment for what they perceived as his efforts to trick them into entering World War I. Ireland sent a diplomatic party to the Versailles Treaty Meetings, sending a message to the world leaders that Ireland today asserts her historic nationhood confidently before the new world emerging from the war. Ireland was admitted into the League of Nations in September 1923, just a few months after the Irish Civil War came to a conclusion. Ireland was admitted to the world organization as the Irish Free State. Admittance to the League was an intense source of pride for Irish Republicans, as it represented widespread acceptance of an independent Ireland, even if Britain didn't yet acquiesce. Why was Ireland able to enter the League against what were obvious British objections? Unlike its replacement, the United Nations, the League did not confer veto power in the hands of a Security Council. In 1923, the organization had a clear anti-colonial bias, and Ireland was admitted based upon vocal support from South Africa, Egypt, and Ho Chi Minh, who represented Vietnam. One of the ceremonial duties for the revolving leadership of the League was to give an address at the annual opening of the Assembly. The delegates were told that de Valera's address would be merely a summary of the League of Nations' prior work. The Irishmen didn't stick to the script, telling the audience that they could read the report if they wanted to. Instead, he challenged the League to stand up for its founding principles and ideals, stating that friends and enemies of the League alike feel that the testing time has come and they are watching to see if that test will reveal a weakness presaging ultimate disillusion or a strength that will be the assurance of a renewal of vigor and growth. The eyes of all peoples are focused on Geneva today as perhaps they have never been focused on it before. He went on to claim that the League only paid lip service to its fundamental principles, accusing it of being paralyzed by the pressure of powerful national interests. The Daily Herald said that it was a speech that many of us have been waiting to hear, at once a warning and an appeal for action. It's safe to say that the speech stunned those in attendance. Rather than the usual polite applause, de Valera's words were met with absolute silence. 
It was a sign that the membership was deep in thoughts regarding their own shame at failing to meet the occasion. His message had hit its mark, and Amen became the international man of the hour. A French journalist wrote that crowds of powerful men would part in order to allow the tall man in his broad-brimmed black hat, dark glasses, and long black coat to pass. The New York Times referred to De Valera as the personality of the session, and he was hailed as the league's new strongman. He capitalized on this newfound fame by booking meetings with Pope Pius XI, as well as the future Pope Pius XII in the Vatican and Benito Mussolini in Rome during the summer of 1933. The rosy outlook for De Valera and the League changed in December of that year. Germany withdrew from the organization after their citizens approved the severing of the relationship, with 95% of their citizens voting in favor in a referendum. Their exit followed Japan, who had earned the scorn of the League for their invasion of Manchuria in February. 1935 was the next opportunity for the League to display its backbone in defense of its principles. Italy had begun provocations against Ethiopia via its holdings in Somaliland. They had constructed a 60-man military base in contested territory. Both sides in the conflict appealed to the League of Nations to determine which actor was in the right. The League's response, however, was inconclusive, and the lack of a clear-cut answer gave Italy the go-ahead to invade Ethiopia. This act was enough for the League to rectify its original ambivalence to the initial outbreak of hostilities and proceeded to initiate economic sanctions. Ireland was never ambivalent during the crisis and immediately pushed for the League to act. De Valera was so incensed that he considered running for president of the League, but took his name out of contention after objections by the French, who mistakenly believed that he was a firebrand that would seek to go to war with Italy under the League flag. Once the League of Nations chose sides, Eamon was happy to support the sanctioning of Italy, but was not joined by any of the major powers. By themselves, Ireland's sanctions didn't have much effect on Italy. Their only export to Rome were horses, and their trade with Italy only amounted to 1% of all of the horses that they exported. In a typical year, this amounted to between 14 and 42 horses total. Further reducing their effectiveness, the United States increased its exports to Rome, and France and England remained neutral. In the face of the inaction of the world powers, Dev spoke truth to power, stating, The people and the nations desire security, but they are not willing to make the sacrifices necessary to achieve it. Three months later, Adolf Hitler marched his military forces into the demilitarized Rhineland. The slow but unstoppable crawl towards World War II had begun. Eamon was determined to keep Ireland from being pulled into any conflict that might come. 
he attempted to maintain positive relations with the future Axis powers. In correspondence with Italy, he used Mussolini's preferred title of emperor. This upset France and England because it seemed to legitimize his takeover of Ethiopia. Eamon was reasonably sure that Ireland would not be a target in a future war, but he did not yet have full control of Ireland. External association with the Commonwealth would allow him to not enter the war on the side of Great Britain, but three ports in Irish territory were still operated by the British military. These ports would be critical battlefields in any war with Germany. As long as they remained under the control of the crown, Ireland would be a legitimate target for anyone at war with England. The opportunity to shed this last connection to his colonizers arrived in the form of Neville Chamberlain. The conservative Chamberlain came to power in 1937 and at age 68 was the second oldest person to become prime minister for the first time. He will be known for the foreseeable future for the act of appeasing Adolf Hitler, a policy that was an unequivocal failure. Hitler could have been stopped, but as Amon pointed out to the League of Nations, no one was willing to make the sacrifice to achieve it. The remilitarization of the Rhineland was a massive gamble for the German Chancellor. Hitler had even given orders that if the French opposed his soldiers in any way, that they were to swiftly withdraw. Regrettably, France froze, allowing the occupation and the remilitarization to go unopposed. England, however, did worse. They justified Hitler's actions for him pointing out that it was no different than Germany invading its own backyard. All of this is to point out that Chamberlain was not alone in his attempts to appease Hitler. Historian David McCullough attempts to explain Chamberlain without redeeming him, revealing that to the Prime Minister, appeasement did not mean surrender, nor was it a policy only to be used towards dictators. To him, appeasement meant the methodical removal of the principal causes of friction in the world. War with Hitler was on the horizon, and Chamberlain started his premiership already embroiled in the ongoing economic war with Ireland. Eamon faced off with the new prime minister in one-on-one -on -one negotiations, demanding the return of Northern Ireland, the removal of all land annuities, and the return of all military ports. It didn't matter that the economic war was having a much greater negative effect against Ireland. Dev was always going to ask for the world in any negotiation. Interestingly enough, Chamberlain compared de Valera to Hitler upon meeting the Irishman for the first time on January 17, 1937, pointing out that it was no use employing with them the arguments which appealed to reasonable men. Their first chat turned quickly to what-if scenarios. De Valera didn't hold back. He told the British that Ireland would not support the English in any war that unfolded. His intention was to remain absolutely neutral in any conflict. Chamberlain attempted to focus the talks on the ports. 
But Eamon insisted that there was no point in talking about anything unless the partition of Northern Ireland was settled first. As Chamberlain continually brought the talks back to the ports, Eamon conceded that England would have the ability to use any Irish ports during an emergency, if they were returned to Ireland. Neville was desperate to have this written down in the form of a promise, but Eamon would not consent. This is where the uniqueness of Neville Chamberlain comes in. Anyone else would have dismissed the Irish politician so that they would have to later grovel just to get back to this point in the negotiations. But Neville wasn't a typical British Prime Minister. As it was his desire to appease, or in his mind to seek to remove any and all barriers to peace, Neville simply gave the ports back to Ireland. There was no contract, there were no written guarantees, there was no quid pro quo or a requirement to receive something back in a later larger peace deal. He simply gave the ports back. Dev, who took great pride in his negotiation ability, was taken aback. He accepted the ports with the small condition of agreeing to pay to bring the port defenses up to adequate standards. The huge grin on his face was wiped off, however, when he explained the day's events to two of his hardline cabinet members. They believed that Dev had been the one that was swindled, and that he had sacrificed any chance to get Northern Ireland back by cutting defense ties with Great Britain. The next day, Dev attempted to give back the ports so he could continue to negotiate for them. He half-heartedly complained about how much it was going to cost Ireland to upgrade them. Chamberlain pointed out how strange Eamon's negotiation stance was by telling the assembled group that maybe the British should spare Mr. De Valera the embarrassment of having the treaty ports offered to him. Eamon eventually agreed and left with everything that he had asked for, except Northern Ireland. With that, the economic war was over, and as usual, Eamon expressed no regrets about the role that he played in causing it, pointing out that the Irish people's suffering was necessary in order to secure the position we have got today. For Chamberlain, the goodwill of the Irish was the most important thing. He viewed the ports as the price for getting on the good side and establishing rapport with the Irish leader. In his mind, it would be impossible for the Brits to defend the ports if the Irish sought a repeat of the 1916 Rising during World War I. A positive relationship, however, opened up the possibility of not only using the ports, but actively drawing Ireland to their side. Even a friendly, neutral Ireland at their back would be better than a hostile one. The opposition party of England's parliament did not agree with Neville's assessment. Winston Churchill referred to the agreement by plainly stating that a more feckless act can hardly be imagined. He described it as folly for the British and a triumphant accomplishment for de Valera. In a speech on the floor of Parliament, Churchill did not mince words, stating that de Valera has not even abandoned his claim for the incorporation of Ulster. He has said that he will never rest until partition is swept away. Therefore, the real conflict has yet to come. These ports are, in fact, the sentinel towers of the Western approaches, 
by which the 45 million people in this island so enormously depend on foreign food for their daily bread, and by which they can carry on their trade, which is equally important to their existence. Under this agreement, it seems to me that Mr. De Valera's government will at some supreme moment of emergency demand the surrender of Ulster as an alternative to declaring neutrality. Chamberlain is casting away real and important means of security and survival for vain shadows and for ease. Having appeased the Irish by removing most of the roadblocks to peace, Chamberlain could now concentrate on Adolf Hitler. After remilitarizing the Rhineland, the German dictator had invaded Austria-Hungary and the Sudentland in Czechoslovakia by claiming that they were repressed German minorities under assault. Once his forces were established within their neighbors' borders, the Germans set up a placebite or referendum which they rigged to portray themselves as heroic saviors rather than invaders. The fact that the Sudentland also had Europe's largest munitions factories also might have been a factor in Hitler's consideration over which quote-unquote German minorities to save first. The next target where this scenario could play out was in Poland. Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. The world had witnessed that Hitler was not holding to a spoken word, that each individually illegal action he took would be his last one. But Chamberlain sought to give it one more chance to avoid war. Shame on him, he sought out a meeting with Hitler. Eamon expressed gratitude to Neville Chamberlain for this step. In a personal letter which he communicated to the British Prime Minister, he wrote, One person at least is completely satisfied that you are doing the right thing no matter what the result. To stop short at any action which held out the slightest hope of success in view of what is involved would be very wrong. Chamberlain responded that whatever happens, I shall not regret what I've done. I am convinced that I was only just in time to prevent a disaster. The decision looked like an instant success, as Hitler agreed to talks with Britain and France at what became known as the Munich Conference. De Valera heard the news and wrote directly to Chancellor Adolf Hitler, telling him, With admiration I have seen you build up the new Germany. You have made your nation once more a great and respected power whose will could not be ignored in European affairs. To risk losing for your country all that you have gained appeared to me a hazard which should not be taken. How glad I am for the sake of England and for the sake of Germany that you have decided so. It is unknown whether or not Hitler ever read the note. Ireland did not bet everything on the success of Chamberlain's appeasement. Fearful that Ireland's ports could still come under attack despite a neutral stance, de Valera ordered the agreed-upon upgrades to the ports, for the purpose of warding off an invasion for a sufficiently long enough period to allow the British to come to our aid. But Ireland was nowhere close to prepared for war. 
Although he increased defense spending, Ireland was only committing 5% of its annual budget to its defense. Other neutral nations, including the Netherlands and Denmark, were spending four to five times that amount. Finland had an army of 135,000 peacetime soldiers. Meanwhile, Ireland had no munitions factories, no air force, and an army that numbered in the low tens of thousands. Meanwhile, thousands of guerrilla fighters in the IRA had already declared war against Great Britain in 1939 and had begun to conduct bombing runs in England. The worst attack was an explosion in Coventry that killed five people and injured 72. A year into the war, things hardly looked any better. De Valera personally called for more recruits in 1940, saying, when great powers are locked in mortal combat, the rights of small nations are as naught to them. If the violation of our treaty promises advantage, then our territory will be violated. Our country will be made a cockpit. Our homes will be leveled and our people slaughtered. MI6 reports viewed Ireland so helpless that a force made up of 2,000 Germans could probably capture the whole country. This was a believable scenario, as the Germans viewed the IRA as a natural German ally. The MI6 report concluded that Ireland might effectively be overpowered, Dublin captured, and an IRA government established within a few hours after the invasion began. De Valera heard of the invasion of Poland on the radio the morning of September 1st. The doll was summoned to meet the following day to pass emergency legislation that officially declared their position of neutrality. This moment in Irish history became known as the emergency. Ireland was one of many small European nations that attempted to stay neutral. But none of the other neutral nations were members of the British Commonwealth. Of those that attempted it, only five nations were able to retain their neutrality throughout the war. Joining Ireland on that list were Sweden, Switzerland, Portugal, and Spain. The decision to remain neutral was celebrated in Berlin and chastised in London. For those that lambasted Ireland's decision as an act of moral cowardice, De Valera pointed out the likewise neutral stance of the United States. Eleven days into the war, Eamon sent out Ireland's policies regarding its neutrality to the British, French, and German governments. McCullough outlines them as vessels of war, whether surface or submarine, were banned from Irish territorial waters, except in certain well-recognized cases of distress or necessity. Belligerent military aircraft were also banned from Irish airspace. Germany was allowed to maintain a diplomatic presence in Dublin in the form of Ambassador Edward Hempel. This privilege extended to Italy and Japan as well. De Valera, however, was unwilling to accept an official British diplomat, considering that he had spent the past 20 years doing everything that he could to expel them from his territory. He eventually met with Sir John Maffey, but did so in private forcing the knighted diplomat to travel under an assumed name and conduct the meeting in the office of the Department of Agriculture 
rather than devs' personal offices. The Battle of the Atlantic was crucial to the Allied war effort. German U-boats sought to sink any vessel traveling across the Atlantic from the Americas. Without the Irish ports, the British had to keep a constant presence at sea, putting them more at risk of a surprise attack from beneath the surface. Had they retained possession of the ports, or been at least allowed to use them, they could have sailed out in response to sightings, rather than be left like sitting ducks on long patrols. De Valera set up watchtowers to search out and identify German activity, and would relay sightings via bicycle messengers. Although he was officially neutral, these positions were privately leaked to the British. Likewise, Ireland arrested all pilots of downed planes over their territory. The German prisoners remained in Irish custody, but the British ones were secretly released after their initial imprisonment. It was all for show. As the war carried on, de Valera continued his negotiations with Chamberlain, hinting that he might be willing to enter the war if England ended the partition of Northern Ireland. Owing to the rapport that the two leaders had built up, Ireland would have been more likely to have been drawn into the war. That is if Neville Chamberlain had remained Prime Minister. The invasion of Poland not only marked the end of European peace, it was the beginning of the end of Chamberlain's time as Prime Minister. His replacement, Winston Churchill, despised Amon de Valera, and the feeling was mutual. Churchill had wanted to invade Ireland a decade earlier, at the outset of the Irish Civil War. His position remained the same at the beginning of World War II. Believing that the ports were critical to the war effort and therefore the defense of England, Churchill drew up plans to invade Ireland from Northern Ireland in order to seize the ports in 1940. Churchill regularly claimed in private that the Irish people were stabbing England in the back. When rumors of a British invasion reached Dev's ears, he publicly stated for all to hear that he would declare war against whoever comes first. Meaning that if Germany invaded, then he would declare for the side of the Allies. If, however, England were the first to invade, Ireland would become the next member of the Axis powers. Churchill was convinced enough by this public posturing to hold off the attack but still had his personal military advisor, General Hastings Pug Ismay, draw up plans for the invasion anyways. Additionally, the commander of British troops in Northern Ireland was given instructions to take immediate action if he believed a serious German invasion had taken place, and to do so without waiting for confirmation from England. Ireland's willingness to join the Axis wasn't a bluff. In fact, in May of 1940, it was probably the smart move, albeit one that Amon did not take. Chamberlain claimed that Irish neutrality stemmed from a belief that they don't want to be on the losing side, and that if that is unheroic, one can only say that it is very much the attitude of the world from the USA to Romania and from Japan to Ireland. The day before the French surrendered, Joseph Walsh, Ireland's most senior diplomat, 
told de Valera that Britain's defeat has been placed beyond all doubt, and that neither time nor gold can beat Germany. His other top advisor, Frank Aiken, believed that Britain would be defeated in six weeks. The thought definitely crossed de Valera's mind a year later in 1941, when he mused, I wish there was some way of knowing who will win this war. It would make decisions much easier. Like England, Germany drew up invasion plans. But in June of 1940, the primary intent was to mislead the enemy by spreading false information that they were planning a landing in Ireland. The code name for the German operation was Grund, the German word for green. Also, like Churchill, Hitler was convinced of the strategic importance of Ireland, telling his generals in a meeting that as a base for attacks on the northwestern ports of England, Ireland was important to the German Air Force. Possession of Ireland could have the effect of ending the war, he said. On multiple occasions, offers were made for the deliverance of German weaponry that could be used to rise up against the British and declare full independence once and for all. Memories of the rising failing because of the sinking of the German gun-smuggling Aud had to pass before Amon's rapidly deteriorating eyes. A second offer sweetened the deal to include captured British weapons to the tune of 46 field guns, 550 machine guns, 1,000 anti-tank rifles, and 10,000 rifles all with ammunition. Whereas the Germans offered carrots, Churchill chose the stick. Annoyed at the neutrality of Ireland and the inability to access the ports, Churchill cut off Irish supplies of British food and fertilizer. The Prime Minister asked for frequent updates on how the screw is being applied to southern Ireland. Although harsh, Churchill was known for his insightful judgment, and it is possible that he knew the character of Amon de Valera better than most. They had crossed paths on three occasions before World War II. In Churchill's estimation, de Valera was a malignant cancer that needed removal. Worse, he believed him to be a shameful opportunist who disgracefully used the sacrifices of his countrymen to further his own political career. One needs to look no further than Dev's on-again, off-again relationship with the IRA. The Prime Minister singled out the Irish and Amon in his World War II victory address, combining his name with his chosen name for Ireland, Ira. That means he was purposefully mispronouncing it rather than my good-hearted attempt to get the pronunciation right. Like in every speech he ever wrote, his mispronunciation makes it quite clear where Churchill stood. As he said, owing to the action of Mr. Devil Ira, so much at variance with the temper and instinct of thousands of Southern Irishmen who hastened to the battlefield to prove their ancient valor, the approaches which the southern Irish ports and airfield could so easily have guarded were closed by the hostile aircraft and U-boats. This was indeed a deadly moment in our life, and if it had not been for the loyalty and friendship of Northern Ireland, we should have been forced to come to close quarters with Mr. Devil Ira or perish forever from the earth. 
1940, the chances for that victory had appeared bleak. Churchill's miracle at Dunkirk had stalled what seemed inevitable. The Prime Minister had to write to FDR that if they were faced with the choice of fighting to the end or buying their lives by gifting the Nazis what remained of the Royal Navy, the Brits would choose the latter. During the Blitz, London was bombed by enemy aircraft for 57 consecutive nights. But a journey of a thousand miles always begins with a single step. The next first step towards the Allied victory came on December 7, 1941, when the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor. Churchill immediately knew that this was a turning point. Within four days of the attack, the U.S. had declared war on Japan and Germany and would seek to prioritize the liberation of Europe first. The cavalry was finally coming. De Valera found out about Pearl Harbor at 1.30 in the morning. The British diplomat, Sir John Maffey, had been ordered to deliver an urgent message. At 2 a.m., Amon received the diplomat, who simply handed him a Churchill telegram that read, Now is your chance, now or never, a nation once again. Am very ready to meet you at any time. As de Valera pondered this momentous opportunity, he faced a critical decision that could redefine Ireland's role in the war. What was Amon's response to what appeared to be an offer for Irish independence, gifted by England and possibly including Northern Ireland in the deal? He told Maffey that a meeting was a bad idea and everyone should go back to bed. Apparently, it was too early for the day that will live in infamy. The offer for independence infuriated Eamon. The phrasing of now or never, as well as a nation once again, ignored the work that de Valera had done to push Ireland out of the Commonwealth and towards external association. To him, independence was Ireland's right, and therefore something that needed to be seized, rather than given. In his first public speech after Pearl Harbor, de Valera publicly expressed sympathy for the people of the United States, but added that Pearl Harbor would not bring Ireland into the war. The U.S., known for its stubbornness, attempted to sway his opinion. Unfortunately, they had the wrong guy. Their diplomat in Dublin was David Gray, an American playwright and relative of the Roosevelts. Gray personally believed that de Valera was a Nazi sympathizer, and thus was at odds with nearly everything that he did. Eamon blamed Gray personally for poisoning the relationship with the American president, a man that he had worked with during his American tour during the Irish War of Independence. The war began to turn, albeit slowly. By 1942, Hitler had gotten his army bogged down fighting Russia, one of his other big mistakes that led to Germany's defeat. By July 1942, Churchill had concluded that there was no risk now of invasion of Ireland. This didn't improve relations between the two states, however. In 1943, the Times of London published an editorial that described Ireland as traitor's land, and the United States jumped on board with the character assassination. Diplomat David Gray repeatedly attempted to make Dev look bad. One such front in the PR war included a request that Ireland kick out the foreign diplomats from Axis powers. 
The British opposed this move, as they had deciphered the German diplomatic codes and had been spying on Hempel throughout the war. When given the demand, Eamon replied to the American, Of course our answer will be no. As long as I am here, it will be no. This is a predictable response, and the only one that was possible for Ireland to maintain its public face of neutrality. Gray knew this going in. In fact, he hoped for it. Eamon's response and other quotes that he had previously said praising Germany were subsequently leaked to the public by Gray. After it received front-page coverage, an opinion poll found that 71% of Americans were aware of his decision to continue hosting Axis diplomats, and two-thirds felt that the U.S. should take action against Ireland for it. 4% of Americans felt that invading Ireland was an appropriate response to the made-up scandal. This was potentially devastating for the Irish leader. Even at this junction of his career, de Valera regularly relied upon Irish-American support for his funding base. On June 6, 1944, D-Day was successfully completed, and the Allies had managed to gain a foothold in continental Europe. It was now the fall of Germany that was viewed as inevitable. At the Yalta Conference in 1945, the Allies decided to give neutral countries one last chance to join the winning side. In return for their support, they would receive acceptance into what would become the United Nations. The planning for the new world order had begun before the war had ended. Ireland once again refused to budge from its stance of neutrality. Hitler would die of self-inflicted gunshot wounds two months after the offer at Yalta. His death gave the American David Gray one last chance to destroy de Valera's reputation. In what is a somewhat self-inflicted wound, de Valera called Edward Hempel, the German ambassador, to express his condolences for the death of Hitler. There are a number of experts who believe that Amon de Valera may have had Asperger's syndrome, a rare form of autism that typically showed itself in the form of poor social skills and occasional genius. Trinity College's professor and psychologist Michael Fitzgerald is among those who have made the case, pointing out that individuals with the syndrome tend to show impairment in social relations, lack empathy, struggle with conventional language use, display nativity and childish, and have narrow or obsessive interests as well as an unusual sense of humor. He also points out that individuals with Asperger's are capable of remarkably original ideas but may lack common sense, despite the fact that their intelligence is often above average. In Eamon's mind, he was merely offering the minimum of diplomatic courtesies. Ireland was a neutral party, and Hempel had always been courteous to him. David Gray, however, seized on what was clearly a diplomatic blunder. Everyone at this point knew the full extent of the Holocaust, in addition to all of the death and destruction that Hitler's traditional war practices had inflicted for half of a decade. Gray's propaganda assault even included a rumor that Eamon had signed his name to an official book of condolences to the German Führer. 
cultural historian Claire Wills notes that no other action by the neutral government during the war did more to harm de Valera's reputation or to bring his policy into disrepute. She notes that it is still the best-known event in Ireland's wartime history and the most infamous. For six years, Amon had successfully steered Ireland on its course of absolute neutrality, during which both sides of the conflict had planned for the eventual invasion of his country, only to then fumble when he was on the one-yard line. The New Statesman, a British paper, wrote that Mr. de Valera in the previous week must have seen the photographs of Dachau and Buchenwald. In Mr. de Valera's condolences, we can see the degradation of civilized beliefs which made Hitler and the Nazi regime possible. Ireland's decision to remain neutral throughout the war is absolutely justifiable. They had inadequate defense forces and no air force to their name. There is no evidence that Irish fighters could have prevented what happened at the Maginot Line, Dunkirk, or Auschwitz. In fact, it likely would have worsened the situation for the Allies, as the IRA was in the wings waiting to restart the Civil War. If Ireland had sent its forces to mainland Europe, Germany could have easily repeated 1916 and transferred weaponry to the IRA for the purposes of a wartime insurrection. Had the Irish allowed the Brits access to the ports or entered the war on the Allies' side, they would have been bombed relentlessly just as London had been during the Blitz. Despite its neutrality, Dublin was still the recipient of aerial bombing on seven separate occasions. Although it demanded to be left alone, it had no way of enforcing its will. The country's lack of an air force meant that the skies above RE were fair game for duels between the Royal Air Force and the German forces. Remaining neutral also fit with de Valera's number one goal of asserting Irish independence. Only a nation-state could assert independence. Britain's colonies did not receive a choice in their participation, and all of the other members of the Commonwealth sacrificed throughout the war on behalf of the Crown. Fianna Fáil won both elections during the war, and Eamon was retained as Taoiseach by record margins. Although there was a moral failure in failing to confront the Germans, Ireland was more of a non-belligerent than a true neutral party. Eamon privately shared intelligence with the British, particularly in identifying the location of German U-boats off the coast. German pilots that crash-landed were treated very differently than Allied forces, who all made it quickly out of jail through the private back doors. British flights were allowed to fly overland, whereas Germans were denied access to Irish airspace. Allied planes were even allowed to land and refuel as long as they did it when no one was watching. Lastly, there were a number of brave Irishmen who willingly chose to serve in the British forces. Amon not only allowed this service, but he also reduced barriers for Irish workers to emigrate to England. 165,000 traveled to take up jobs that freed British workers to join the war effort against the Nazis. The 1945 after-war report, commonly referred to as the Cranbourne Report, listed an additional 13 different ways that Irish cooperation benefited the British war effort. 
While there was belief on all sides about the critical importance of the Irish ports, Neville Chamberlain's original position was validated. A friendly Ireland had helped the war effort. The denial of use for the ports was equally applied to both sides, and thus made them irrelevant to both parties, thus having a minimal effect on the war. The partition of Northern Ireland was the most significant casualty of Eamon's neutrality. Churchill reserved special thanks for the men and women of Ulster in his Victory Day speech, stating that, but for Northern Ireland's loyalty and friendship, the British people should have been confronted with slavery or death. Northern Ireland conscripted soldiers, provided agricultural supplies, and served as a staging ground for Allied forces arriving from overseas. Their industrial output significantly advantaged Britain, to the point that the Germans concentrated on bombing Belfast more than England's ports in the later portions of the war. The difference in the actions of the two Irish states could not have been more clear, and nothing solidified partition more in the minds of the British. The six counties of Northern Ireland would never rejoin its 26 county cousins. Amon de Valera regularly admitted that this was his greatest failure. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you want to interact with the show, you can email us at resourcesbylowry at gmail.com. If you would like to financially support the show, please look in the description for more information. As always, thank you for listening, rating the show, and spreading the word.